0: in this moment where you hear this phrase of post-truth world bandied about, uh, constantly. Oh, we're in a post-truth world, we can't find the truth. I mean, I feel like that's the function of debate is to try and get to that truth.
1: Hi everybody, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm John Donvan. And today, debate, that thing that we do, as you know, but rather than present a debate in this program the way I usually do, I want to take you behind the scenes at IQ2, which is what we call ourselves behind the scenes at Intelligence Squared. I, I want to do that in a couple of different ways. One is I want you to meet somebody other than myself, who is part of our organization, to share with you what we all did during the pandemic. And the other thing we want to do is to look at some of the questions that we're asking ourselves about that thing that we do, debate. For example, where does debate now fit into our polarized national discourse? Are we shedding light with debate? Does it lead to anything that we can reasonably call truth? Have we all become so mired these days in our own filtered confirmation bias that real debate is actually maybe a non-starter? And finally, has the cost of trying out new ideas become so high that maybe we don't really want to risk it in public any longer? You have heard me say this before. Our mission is to serve as a beacon for those who still crave reasoned analysis and constructive public discourse. But we cannot do it alone. We need, as always, your support, as well as the support of those who really think about this stuff. And so today I have the pleasure of introducing three guests – who will help me examine this thing that we are all trying to do here at IQ2 and trying to preserve. Our first guest is Robert Lighton, economist, attorney, Brookings scholar, author, most recently, of a book on how we can strengthen a new generation of students in the areas of things like objective analysis and critical thinking by using debate in the classroom. The book is called Resolved. Debate can revolutionize education and help save our democracy. Robert Lighton, that's a very big claim, and I want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And next in our group will be one of our most successful debaters, and I'm saying successful in terms of win, the win-lose score, which is also something I think we're going to talk about. He has debated everything from net neutrality to student debt. Nick Gillespie is a libertarian journalist and former editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. Nick, thanks so much for joining us again at Intelligence Squared. It's my pleasure, and I realize this is not a competition,
2: but I want to win this conversation too.
1: <laughs>
2: right. You have set me up. I feel like I'm a, a heel in an old uh, professional wrestling setup or something. I'm very successful. I've been lucky to have I'm really a- good partners, but
1: finally, oh, so modest. Finally, last but certainly not least is our own CEO, Clea Connor, with whom I would like to start with that behind-the-scenes look that I promised, Clea. What kind of a year would you say it has been for, let's say, in discourse in general, the the things that we were we're there to talk about and and how we at Intelligence Squared rose to the occasion in the middle of a pandemic?
0: If I had to choose a word, um, I would say it was interesting. The next word would be uh, extraordinary. And the final word would be uh, difficult. Um, you know, this in, in terms of rising to the occasion for Intelligence Squared, you know, um, obviously we had no idea what we were in for. And actually, you know, Nick, um, here in this conversation, was scheduled to debate student loans with us um, in March 2020. And we canceled that debate the very day before um, we were supposed to host that live event and it was a, a moment for us to realize that everything that we'd been building for the last year and everything that we'd done um, was, was no more. And we really had to accept that and pivot and basically create a, almost a new business model for this organization, um, learn entirely new disciplines for, this, for, the, for the staff, do all of our budgeting over. I mean, it really it's not just a pivot to putting things online um it was a pretty transformational moment for us to to reconfigure this translate our work and make it as engaging um you know and and impactful as possible
1: and and there were like ma- major big issues floating across the horizon coming in over the transom, let's put it that way um, um the the extremely contentious uh election that took place the assault on the Capitol. I mean, it was a it was a wild background, a wild landscape in which to be navigating the issues to be that we should be debating.
0: In terms of the the landscape, the uh, the amount of unknowns, um, the unpredictability of it, kind of made it really exciting going into the election. Where you know um, the the debates that we saw, the presidential debates were um, you know disheartening to say the least. And we didn't even have all of the debates because uh, President Trump wouldn't wouldn't participate in a virtual event, uh, which was kind of an interesting moment of reflection for us. Um, and then you know how you're, how, what's happening going forward? It's a question I'm fielding every single day. When are you having events again? What are you going to be doing in the future? You know, how can I attend another Intelligence Square debate? So, you know that that piece of the unknown is also it's a challenge because it's very hard to plan around that. Um, But at the the same time, I think that this was such a huge opportunity for us. And in terms of rising to the occasion, you know, it's I think it's very it's obviously a lot easier to keep doing what you've been doing, what you're familiar with, Um, especially like as a as a media company. You know, there's a lot of trial and error. And I'm sure Nick can speak to this also from the reason perspective. Um, but you eventually arrive at a formula that really works and you're tweaking it and refining it over time. You know, this was just a complete disruption. Um, so it was an opportunity for us to be really innovative.
1: We had one one glitch that I think we smoothed over in the beginning, but um, I, I had a conversation between uh, two debaters and I was in Washington. One debater was in one city. One debater was in the other city. And somehow or other... I failed to push record on my end of the conversation. And uh, so what we had was, was uh, the recordings of two debaters and not me. Um, but we could hear my voice in the background of one of the debaters' recordings. And when we realized that my voice was missing, I sat down and I put on headphones and I played back the bad recording of me from the other, other person's recording, and I redid all of my lines. Uh, even, I, I actually did my, my coughs and my ahems and my half interruptions and all kinds of – I re- recreated the entire thing, which I completely feel was intellectually honest because it was everything I said the first time. And it was me both times, but um, it, we, we were able to pull it together. But we had a, we had a number of, of challenges and little glitches like that with getting the software uh, worked out. John, how far away are you from
2: uh, and the Intelligence Square team from recreating uh, six seconds in Dallas? I'm curious when you're, if, you, if you're reconstructing uh, stuff. That's that's a wonderful story, though. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I think, but, uh, if I may say, I think you know part of what's happened over the past year is that. And as somebody who considers himself a, a postmodern libertarian, I'm, I'm somewhat comfortable with this, although a little bit frightened. You know, what we've learned is that reality itself is really up for grabs in a way that I don't think we had felt in our guts until we were all locked, uh, you know, locked into our houses. And, and every everything we were consuming was a vastly
1: intensely mediated experience of what might be going on outside. Oh, very interesting way to put it, Nick. I mean, you—you've debated with us on the live format situation, live stage in front of a live audience, which is—which is how we've we we did it since 2006 until 2020, and um, then you have participated in the uh, the virtual version. I'm wondering how how the experience differed from one to the other for you.
2: Yeah, and congratulations on you guys for changing, because I know a number of organizations that basically, you know, their response to the pandemic was, let's keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, until we all wake up from whatever is going on right now. And that, I think, is always a recipe for failure. That's, you know, that's why a lot of businesses, you know, some of which tried to adapt, but couldn't. So I think it was great that you guys shifted into different mode, because you're what you're, I suspect. And, you know, what you're selling is the debate, the discussion, the information flow and the, the kind of positive, I think, uh, you know, socially uh, uh, good clash of ideas so that different you know, people can watch and learn and come to new understandings of things. I think that's really good. There's no question you lose that sense of energy and excitement in a big room when you guys and I've attended far more of your debates in person than I've ever, um, you know, been on the stage for. And there's that buildup of this is a live event and people are really going to be, you know, w- going all out to convince people of their point of view. That's an excitement that I don't think you get online Having said that, the ability to pull in so many different people from so many different places uh, to participate in debates—because all of us who do live events know the hardest thing is figuring out logistics of getting the people you want in—you know, into the tiny stamp of postage stamp of space you need at a certain time for an event to happen, by opening that up, you guys preserve, I think, the most important function of what you're doing, which is making people think about topics uh, that are important to all of us from a wide variety of points of view. So I love the, um, the virtual debates made that easier. And I hope, you know, to be blunt, and I obviously I have no stake in this, but I hope you keep doing virtual debates because it's a different uh, environment it's a different experience and i think it allows you to get across different uh you know different sets of people talking about things in different ways
1: claire you know one, one thing we we did not do um, was put the debates behind a paywall and and again uh, this is something I, I share often in our podcasts that um, intelligence squared is a nonprofit organization where 501c3 we're funded by our audience. We are funded by you, our listeners, and we really, really are always asking for your support. Um, but what we did not do was 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 change the model of charging. We ne- we have never charged for debates, and we continued not to, even though we were now fully in this virtual world. Why not? What was the thinking there?
0: Well, we're we're you know tried and true to our model has been a philanthropy. And we're sustained by the support of the Rosencrantz Foundation, Robert Rosencrantz, our founder, uh, the individuals that listen to our programs, institutions, and sponsors, whether those are academic organizations or, you know, corporations. Um, And for us, you know, part of this is really building a community and we want to engage people around the idea of the role of debate in society, uh, you know, really kind of trying to elevate public discourse return to civility and respect in the public square, which we may have seen reach a, a fever, you know, pitch uh, in January during an insurrection on our capital, And that was a, that was a moment for me, having worked in, you know, run intelligence squared for a couple of years and been with the organization for many years. That was really kind of, wow, this is, this is a moment that's, this is a crisis um, that may be the result of so many intersecting things, whether it's social media and filter bubbles and extreme partisanship. There's the lowest level of, of trust in the media, all culminating in, in, at one time. Um, and of course, there's many other factors. But, you know, that was for us a moment, too, to say, wow, we really need to just open this up and, and make reach as many people as possible with this program. And putting it behind a paywall defeats that purpose. Um, so we've actually been rounding up new partners and advertisers and creating new opportunities to have more sustainable funding um, to make sure that we can keep this as a public utility.
1: What you were just talking about, I think, is a perfect opening um, to, br- to bring Robert Lighton into the conversation. And as I said, Robert has given a great deal of thought to what debate is, the role of debate, the consequences of debate, the future of debate. His book, again, the title is called Resolved Debate Can Revolutionize Education and Help Save Our Democracy. Um, Robert, what's really interesting is that I think we're in an era where we're hearing people question whether debate is, is in itself a valid and positive force in society. That we're, that we're, you, you write in your book about. Um, there's a sort of argument about debate called the critic argument from the german word critic and uh it suggests that debate itself is perhaps elitist um, um it's uh it it serves uh, and is and is and serves the interests of um um the, the powerful against the weak both because of uh issues regarding uh money and education etc taking all of that into account and I, I also want to get to your thesis about the role of debate in the classroom, but I'd like to do the big picture for the moment. Where, where do you think we are in the respect that debate gets as a, as a form of discourse these days?
3: Well, if we're talking about it in the school setting, um, competitive debate is still very much alive. In fact, as we speak or recording today, um, the uh, national high school championship is currently underway, and people um, could actually live stream it um, and watch it. In fact, one of the useful exercises I would suggest to audience members is that they go on YouTube where, where these events are recorded, whether the college or the national high school championships, and they can watch um, uh, kids um, uh, or college students um, debate things very intelligently, very eloquently.
0: All right. So let's talk about my case. Allie, are you ready? Yeah. Judges? Awesome. So we agree on justice. What she says to societal welfare is that it doesn't give each their due because we have to protect rights. I agree. First of all, rights come into conflict. You can't protect everyone's rights at the same time. That means you have to protect as many people's rights as you can. But also recognize, literally the only way we protect rights is with the criminal justice system. Remember, driving in itself is not illegal. It's only when you take the action to harm somebody else when it actually becomes illegal. The same here is the, is the same thing here with the legal drug usage.
3: I would urge them to stay off, by the way, what I call the fast debate kind of thing, which is a whole quarter of debate where... Uh, uh, a certain form of debate called policy debate has degenerated into who can talk fast um, and i actually think that's destructive and i talk about
0: it in my book
3: the more conventional debates are the kind of things that uh, we adults normally engage in. You can see examples of those, and you can draw, I think, a lot of inspiration and encouragement from those from those students when you see this. Um, so uh, clearly, competitively, it's um, it's debate is a very big deal. But the reason I wrote my book, and we can transition into the whole classroom thing in a second, is that I want the virtues of debate to be embedded as a pedagogical tool uh, in the classroom uh, in middle and high school as a way to train. Uh, students' uh, incivility and reasoning, um, and have, supporting their arguments with evidence, and literally being able to talk, and why that benefits them, not only um, in their civic life after they graduate, but also in 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 the workplace.
1: Well, you, you're you're when I read your book, I came it made reference to a New York Times column that I had not uh, caught when it came out in October of 2019, but it was by um, a philosophy professor and a law student, Jonathan Ellis and Francesca Hovigimian, who challenge challenge competitive high school debate um, on on grounds that I found really quite interesting. And and it had not been something that we had discussed inside uh, the walls of Intelligence Squared, but it argued that debate, um, it, 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 it made the case that competitive debate has some serious negative consequences, um and the it, it it said that um school debate reinforces a, a mode of reasoning in which the point is not to find the truth but the point is to win and I'm quoting here by celebrating those who are most adept at it. Schools hold it up as a model form of thinking. interestingly, most of the article is making a case for the virtues of debate, but the idea that um that a debate is set up to have a winner and a loser is ultimately destructive and any sort of uh, uh, effort to find truth and to find to find reasonable reasonable actionable common ground and it's a really interesting critique and and it's not one that we just want to dismiss out of hand and I'm sure you've thought about it I, I just want to hear what you think about that okay so uh,
3: there are critiques to be leveled at the, at, at competitive debate um, but uh, you've got to understand that the purpose of competitive debate is very much like playing football or playing basketball. It is to win, um, but it's also to develop your skills. Uh, and uh, I interviewed over 100 people for this book, uh, former debaters, and to a person, they said that their lives had been radically changed by debate in a positive way. And I'm an example of one of them. I used to stutter very badly as a kid. Debate brought me out of my shell, um, and I can't explain it as I say in the book how it transformed me. But sort of like throwing a baby into the water and watching to see if the baby sinks or swims, uh, I eventually swam and learned how to talk without stuttering—at least most of the time. It changed my life, um, and it did it for every single other person that I talked to. So the so-called game of playing debate. Is sort of like the virtue of participating in competitive athletics. It builds mm-hmm. teamwork among your among your competitors, I mean, among the fellow uh, people in your school, um, but it also builds all kinds of life skills that benefit you. So I actually dispute that thesis. In the classroom, the point is not to win. I think the point in the classroom is to teach and to help everybody else along uh, so that people understand. And by the way, if you're debating in front of a class, and there are various ways you can do this. You can break up the class and have many debates or you can have one big debate in front of the class and have the rest of the class critique it. If you're speaking in a way that's not persuading your, you know, your schoolmates, you're doing something wrong. Uh, so uh, the competitive juices are something that do give people an interest in debating. Um, and, and, and we can't ignore that. But the main purpose of doing it in the classroom is pedagogical, is to have uh, students teach each other uh, and uh they all learn from that and they do it in a non-threatening way. Because one of the things, you know, all of us remember from school with a sage on the stage is we all know the way classrooms work. Um, even teachers, especially teachers that use a Socratic method, they start picking on kids, you know, right and left. The kids are intimidated. The ones that talk the most are the so-called weenies up front who are always raising their hand. And the rest of the class ignores them or makes fun of them. Um, we know that's what school is like. Um, that's not the best way to learn. Uh, the best way to learn is first to be able to speak it and understand and, and 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 try to persuade somebody. And in order to do that, you have to understand the material yourself. Secondly, you have to learn how to listen. Uh, and you're more likely to remember things that you've talked about yourself. Plus, you're more likely to l- learn things, I would argue, if they're coming from other students. Uh, and what and the, and the function of a teacher in a classroom is doing this is to make sure that kids are staying civil that they're thinking of all the arguments they should or could have raised. And, and, the, and the teacher becomes more of a mentor and a facilitator rather than just a lecturer. Now, I'm not advocating you do this every day. If you could do it at least one day per unit or maybe two days per unit, it would, I think, uh, put some spice in the classroom and, and, and help kids learn. And as I point out in the book, this technique is being used in, in some schools in Boston and Chicago with great success. And I argue that it ought to be spread throughout the country.
1: Clay, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what what Robert's, comments make you make you think in terms of what we do where we do put a premium we set it up so there's a premium on winning there, the, you know you get the audience applause we have the audience vote um nick hey, you, you know have-
2: you uh, you might think about giving the winners a cash prize if you're serious
1: <laughs> <laughs> or at least like legal representation I don't know so <laughs> Nick, how, well, let me start with you, then Nick, and then I would like to go to Clay with it. But Nick, how important to you? I think you've won every debate. I think you're one of our few uh, untarnished uh, records I'm so far. I'm four for four. Yes,
2: yeah. All right. I think uh, that I'm Mike might Tyson. Be... I'm Mike
1: Tyson before Buster Douglas. So that's how I'm thinking how... about that. <laughs> Do you do you care? I I really want to know. Does it matter? To, does it is it the debate and the opportunity to present the ideas that matters more to you, or do you actually really care about the winning? Uh,
2: you you know I do care about the winning, and the way you guys frame it you know you you force us in our prep and whatnot to you know to go for the win and to re- you remind us to remind the audience that we want to win this particular vote and I think that 's a helpful um, you know uh, kind of spur to do your best work and to you know kind of present your best case i I do think uh that the the main function of something like intelligence squared and I take it very seriously, is to model. For a you know broader society, particularly you know broader public intellectual society or, or, or public discourse about serious ideas, it's a model of how do you how do you take contentious issues and come to some kind of shared understanding of either their importance or what is to be done. And I think it functions in that way. So I do care about winning. Uh, you know, Robert uh, unfortunately uh, sent me we're talking about high school and being in high school. <laughs> and doing extracurricular activities. Like my entire existence in high school, what, you know, being on a soccer team that couldn't score a goal an entire season taught me was like how to lose with grace. (laughs) Um, So I'm happy to hear that some people participate in things like debate or or high school sports and learn how to win gracefully. But uh, my experience was different, but it does focus, you know, having it, it, it it you know in the end I'm more I'm more satisfied when I feel like I've learned a lot from the other side than whether or not I've won
1: something. You were a very gracious winner, I should say, because you have always said at the end of the debate you've congratulated the other side and you've conceded that you learned things from them and you found things that they said persuasive. And that's kind of uh, our our gold standard for being a, a sore not a sore winner, a gracious winner. Well, I so, yeah, you know. Um,
2: if, if I may just to extend sure. that for a second, I mean, again, you know, and this might be more of a meta commentary, but I think one of the profound difficulties with contemporary American culture is, you know, we have more opportunities to engage each other, to convince each other, to see realities that we normally ignore or don't want to uh, consider, um, arguments uh, from people's experience and people's knowledge that we don't normally see. And, you know, it, it being able to kind of um, stand in the glare of things that you either don't understand, don't agree with, or don't want to watch is super important. And I think, you know, that's part of what debates do is they force you to rethink your basic reality. And, uh, you know, God, that's like, we need more of that rather than less of that.
1: Mm. Clea, you and I have had a lot of conversations about the, the winning, the win-lose aspect of the, of, of our program. What are you, what are you thinking about it these days?
0: I vacillate between, you know, do we need it? To it's crucial. <laughs> um, there, there are times where I think, and, and maybe I would love to hear what Nick and, and Robert think about, you know, um, the construct of winning in our society right now, and in, in a post-Trump era uh, where there is, there are still parts of the country contesting the vote of who won the election, and winning uh, in in this. Kind of, I don't know. When I think about winning now, I'm wondering if it's creating more divides. If the idea that you have to win something is is making discourse uh, more toxic um, and more divisive. And as I as I've looked at our work, you know, we're starting to roll out some programs that aren't about winning. Actually, John, you mentioned the agree to disagree program, which is two perspectives. You know, um, there's a lot of daylight between these two perspectives so that you can kind of make up your own mind, be informed and, and not influenced by an outcome. Because winning also comes with it, I think in in debate, maybe a right or a wrong. You know, if your side loses, it, you know, it, it, let's look at it from the perspective of the losing side. You know, that is less likely to say, share the debate with their community, less likely to, you know, advocate for listening to this and engaging with it because, you know, they they're, they don't have that, validation of having changed the most minds. Um, so yeah, I've been thinking about yeah. a, a lot, you know, and also the way that, you know, our, our fans, um, know exactly how we do this, but if you don't know how we calculate a winner, uh, for the debates, it's the side that changes the most minds is declared the winner. There's a in percentage percentage point
1: terms, not, not in an absolute sense, but in percentage point terms. Yes.
0: Right. Right. In percentage point terms. But what that often means, if you look at like the 200 debates we've done is there's kind of, two winners in a way, there's a majority, you know, um, you know, there's actually like usually in, in our virtual debates and in the live debates, there's a majority that feel a certain way. Um, and then there's the swing voters that actually changed their minds. And that's how we calculate the impact of the persuasiveness of the arguments. Um, and, you know, so, so maybe there's something to be said for, there's, there's a way most people are thinking, but then there's this variable where you actually are you know, influenced enough to say, "Hey, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I need to rethink this." Or these these arguments were so compelling, I actually changed my mind on this topic. I didn't. Re- I realized I didn't know that much about it, or you know, whatever the the reasons are, uh, which, by the way, are the most rewarding things for us to hear as producers. Um, but you know, this this moment in time is just different, and you know, I do have concerns about what winning means, especially on these topics that are pretty critical public policy issues.
1: Um, Robert, I you you use the word persuasion. Before I say that, I actually think Clea, we would love to hear from people who are listening to this podcast. You know, do you does the vote is the vote for free, from your point of view a critical part of an intelligence square debate? If we had the debate and didn't declare a winner or a loser, would you think that that's better or would you think, "Hey, wait, where's the ending?" So we'd kind of like to hear from your your views on that. Robert, you've mentioned the word persuasion and and Clea just used the word persuasion. Persuasion and substance are not exactly the same thing. An argument is an argument. A debate involves persuasion, involves other things like being charming, being funny, um, making, reducing your opponent to to looking helpless. So so you 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 therefore intellectually dominate, um, and um, sometimes using some unfair tactics. Um, I'm I'm wondering about that aspect of debate, particularly in the public place. And when we go to the highest level, there's room for demagogues to use persuasive techniques, et cetera. Do you, do you consider, is persuasion the right word for what we would be talking about? Or is it a word that has um, some built in pitfalls?
3: All right. So that's an excellent question. And I'm, I'm thinking as you talk um, about two different um Uh, modes or or, or kinds of debate. So in competitive debate in school, when when I talk about persuasion, we're not talking about, I mean, they are accepted rules of the game, so to speak. Um, uh, You you know, you throw out an argument, if it's not rebutted, you lose points. Um, uh, In in, in competitive debate, you don't look at the speaker, their jokes, etc. You look at the quality of their arguments. So there are very set rules. It's like playing basketball or football, and there are very, very distinct rules. Now, when you graduate to the world of adulthood and the audience that, you know, you guys are reaching, um, and we all want to reach, persuasion then brings in all these other, you know, non-argument-related factors, like how funny you are, how charming you are, etc., and you get the personality mixed up with the argumentation. Um, That's just real life. That's That's what happens in the workplace. Um, It's what happens in politics, you know, with all those one-liners that we've seen in presidential debates. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, (laughs) there you
2: go again. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy.
3: how we got four surplus budgets in a row. What new ideas did we bring to Washington? I always give a one-word
0: answer. Arithmetic. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Secretary Clinton.
3: And when we go to the subject of winning, there is a tension, which is clear. Um, uh, uh, Clearly, winning sharpens your argumentation. It sharpens your thinking or the desire to win. On the other hand, I'm going to throw out two completely wild ideas here. And then maybe, you know, uh, people can discuss them or your audience can think about them. Another format, and this is not to replace the winning kind of format. Another format you consider is the search for common ground debate, where you start with two polar opposites and, uh, you enter into essentially, after restating your you know, initial positions, are there things at least you can agree on and simulate a negotiation or a compromise so that not everybody gets what they want? It's not a zero-sum world. Uh, there's a split-the-baby aspect, and people learn the art of compromise. That's one kind of structure which I encourage you to think about. The second thing I, I, I'd encourage people to think about is that IQ – The IQ Square debates feature experts like the Knicks of the world, people that um, obviously are role models for other people. But we're not going to change our society fundamentally until normal people learn how to do this. They learn how to stand in the shoes of somebody else, and they learn how to get out of their filter bubbles and be able to learn how to just to to engage in the kind of discourse that high school kids and college kids now learn when they're doing competitive debate. So one idea to think about is sort of a crowdsourced kind of way to bring in other normal people and have a separate channel for normal people debate. And you don't have to show all the results, but you can have a competition where you can pick out topics. Normal people can engage in debates and run many tournaments in the same way that high schools and colleges do, and then feature some of the semifinal and final rounds so that people, average people who are not experts, but who want to spend the time learning about arguments, uh, can get featured and get noticed so that people watching it realize, look, I don't have to be an expert in order to be able to have or be able to advance an intelligent argument and try to persuade an audience.
1: Claire, that sounds really, really interesting. I mean, that's something I would love to take a look at.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting, Robert, you know, I encountered your book um, probably, you know, only, what, six months ago. And immediately reached out to you. And you have been so insightful with the kind of research that you're doing. Um, and it's made me rethink what we do um, in many ways. And the, the more focus on education, I think, is something that that we're taking more seriously um, here in, in terms of our programming, in terms of how we're, we're designing it, um, and just thinking about how to really engage also the next generation around these ideas uh with the brand that we've built. So I think that that would be uh, a really fun exercise all the way around. And the other one that you and I have talked about a lot is and I know Nick Nick can do this. He can he can argue any side. <laughs> but the but idea you want you yeah, Yes. You do. But the idea that like, you know, you know there is a bit of a war on expertise right now in this country. Mm. Um, we see it in the comments on our website where, you know, how could you put this person on the stage? They did X, Y, Z, they don't have credentials and, you know, they, they really do. Um, and so the idea of opening this up and saying, you know, it's not a, it's not just about expertise and research and, you know, your, your credentials, but participating is really important, but the ability to argue the side you disagree with is kind of the key exercise too, um. Nick can do that. Nick could, you know, go up there and argue the side he completely disagrees with and make a really compelling and persuasive argument. And Robert, you and I have talked about playing with the format for that being part of the exercise to show you have to deeply understand, you know, an opposing point of view and therefore respect me.
1: I want to jump in on that very point because Robert said something in the book on being able to argue both sides that I found surprising. Robert, you wrote, I'm, I'm quoting now, you said, if there's any drawback to competitive debating, it is not closing young minds to the search for truth, but the very opposite, training young people to be too open-minded, a tendency some pick up precisely because they have to debate both sides of a proposition. So, so what are you saying there? When, is, when, when, is, when do we get too open-minded, especially as a result of having to debate both sides?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a danger to everything. I, one of my professors from college, I can't remember who's, who quoted this, and you, you'll probably look it up on, you know, you'll Google it. Um, uh, it. It's, you know, the danger of having an open mind is, is that your brains will fall out. It's great, a great quote. Um, and debate does encourage that because if you debate both sides, you end up sort of having a pro and con list, you know, on a, on a yellow sheet, and you sort of can't make up your mind, you end up becoming indecisive. Um, that, that's a risk. Um, it's frankly a risk I'd rather take given where we are right now in our society <laughs> because we've gone to the polar extreme where people don't even think about that and they're stuck, as you said at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, in their filter bubbles. So I'm willing to take that small risk.
1: We've often had the experience when wanting to book debaters on a given topic of people refusing to get on a stage with an opponent. I think sometimes it's because they're afraid to lose. Um, but I think there's another issue in that they don't want to concede the idea that there really is another side, that there's a valid argument on the other side. And we've had that come up in a number of issues that we wanted to debate. And and by the way, we, we concede that there are topics that we won't touch, that there are propositions that we just think are beyond the pale. Um, and I, I think, you know, uh, there would there would be broad agreement that there are some things that are, that are simply off the table.
0: To that end, John Robert has a, a an area in the book about that some topics yeah. cannot and should not be debated, and I believe Robert, you called it something a bright line. Yeah, you know, saying that there is a bright line that can and should be drawn, um, and and worth coming back to that idea because you know I think it's something yeah. that we all grapple with here. But John, to your point, yeah, there are things that we're just not going to do. <laughs>
3: But is that
1: line moving – is that line beginning to move in a way that makes anybody uncomfortable, I'm wondering? You know, Nick, do do you think that we're in any way reaching into – reaching a a stage in national discourse where there are more topics that are off the table that can't be broached that perhaps you think should be broached, or are you comfortable where things are?
2: I – this is a good question because, you know, when it gets to the idea of of terms like cancel culture or, um, you know, things like that where, you know, can we discuss certain types of topics – uh, that people will say to even engage this means you're indulging in you know racism, sexism, homophobia, heteronormativity, a wide range of things. I tend to be on the side that we should be debating more things, more topics rather than fewer. But I also like you know the idea that this is a place where maybe a winner and loser con uh, you know concept isn't necessary, but it's helpful because one of the ways that you, Kind of, you know i I believe very much in an, an enlightenment kind of vision of a marketplace of ideas, and that in general you know good ideas drive out bad ideas, but the only way that good ideas get to achieve that status and get actually good is by debating and engaging people you disagree with. So there's certain things I'm not interested in re, you know, revisiting. I think it's been settled. But I think as a society, we're at a particular point where people are more willing to talk about more things um, there it, that brings with it, you know, intense attempts to shut down conversation on whole sorts of topics. Um, and we have to we have to uh, push back on that. Um, I think we need to be more willing to engage. You know, we have more, uh, more way, more people are enfranchised to kind of to to present their reality. Um, And that is both incredibly liberating and it's incredibly, um, uh, you know, kind of it, it risks becoming a, a Tower of Babel type situation. And one of the best things we can do is to create spaces where people can engage. I think uh, having certain rules of engagement, uh, that can be civil discussion. It can be, you know, it can be a kind of rant culture that you see in many social media platforms and things like that. But more of that rather than less of that should always be the goal.
1: I'm thinking a few of the topics that that people sometimes urge us to do that we haven't taken on in a direct in the direct way that they would want to phrase it would be, for example, um, climate change is not real. Um, people, you know, we've had people say, you really should be debating whether climate change is real or not. And they feel it very passionately. Um, they're a minority, but but there's a community of people who also have, would, would cite, uh, uh, ver- you know, versions of science that they adhere to and believe in. Vaccines is another one where, you know, People want it, would want to debate that the that, that vaccines cause great harm. And, and we've not gone to those. Um, and, and again, I think that's frustrating for people who hold the position that um, vaccines are, are causing enormous, um, have, causing a large number of casualties across the United I States think, by
2: the way, the, you just, so, well, in, you introduced a new concept, which is that vaccines cause climate change.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: my takeaway.
1: Nick, if you were if you were in our seat, would you would you avoid these debates, or would you say, "Well, you know, I may not agree with it. It might sound crazy to yeah. me, but uh, let's debate it. Let's see what they got." Uh, you know, in a lot Which of is ways, a choice we have not made at this point. Yeah. yeah
2: you know, with something, I, I would also think about rephrasing some of these questions because, you know, I, I for instance, you know, I believe in vaccines uh, and, uh, you know, and I avail myself of them whenever I can. I'm, um, you know, it's it, more than heroin. I'm a junkie for vaccines, I suppose. Um, it might be, why are people afraid of vaccines? Um, or, or the, you know, a frame could be vaccines have done more good than harm because even epidemiologists will acknowledge that, you know, every vaccine comes with certain types of risk. And you broaden it so you allow people to express whatever anxieties or whatever worries are involved. Uh, You know, so for instance, I think it is inarguable that uh, Joe Biden won the 2000 or 2020 presidential election. Uh, But it might be worth saying, um, you know, having, having a discussion of why do people feel Um, You know, why do people feel that the 2020 election was unsettled? And you might be able to get to an airing of very different worldviews. Uh, on a topic that has to be settled, we need to declare a winner in the presidential election, you know, as a, as an absolute. That has to happen. Uh, you know, 2016, uh, a couple of years after that, Hillary Clinton was still grousing in her memoir that the the election had passed. But, you know, the Russians threw it to Donald Trump. She couldn't fully admit that Donald Trump took that to an extreme, insane position when at odds with basic reality. But if you talked about why are we why are we debating the outcomes of presidential elections, we might get to a conversation that could have a winner or loser, but more importantly would air a lot of a lot of why people are anxious or frittering on these issues that seem kind of stupid to to me you know on a personal level
1: robert what what would you think of that one? you know I'd like to hear your take on that robert on 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 a debate on on you know when when a significant number of the population is absolutely Convinced that Donald Trump won the election. Um, Would would there be value in Intelligence Squared saying, let's just bring your evidence, ask the audience to make a commitment, which they probably would make on in in advance and not after the fact, but make a commitment to really follow the evidence, really truly be willing to change your mind if the evidence is persuasive. Um, I'm already, you know, I, I rarely tell anybody where I stand on this one, but I think Joe Biden won the election. So I would be stunned if there were evidence that would change my mind on this. But I would go into it with the position, all right, I'll change my mind. But would that would that be a beneficial thing to, or would that be a destructive kind of debate for us to mount at this point?
3: Well, Nick has raised a good point. Uh, framing is huge. There's a whole literature, by the way, on how you frame things. Um, and um, he's right that maybe one way to approach things is why do people believe X? And then have a debate about that and then a debate about you know what, what's really driving this you know um, uh, in the climate area, um, reframe it from'm um, this is just thinking off the fly here. instead of saying is c- climate change real, uh, I'm now drawing on an insight that um, uh, Judge uh, Richard Posner, one of the most brilliant jurists of our generation, um, he wrote a book uh, called Catastrophes. Um, and uh, he phrased it in this way. Um, what do we do about the risk that there, that, that climate that climate change could be real? In other words, um, very few people will say the risk is zero. All right, um, there'll be obviously you know, some people think it's 100%. But all of us in our lives have all kinds of risks that we confront, and the way we respond to it is we buy insurance against the risk, even though we don't think it's likely to happen. We just don't want it to happen to us. Okay, Um, so when you reframe the question from a zero one kind of thing, is it true or not true? But how do we handle the risk that it could be true? Um, I think even some climate deniers, if you got them really, really honestly to admit it, they would say, look, you know, I'm ninety nine percent sure I'm right. But there's maybe a one percent chance I'm wrong. Well, what do you do about that one percent? You know, what if we're wrong? Because, you know, if we're wrong about climate change not being real, and it actually is real, we do nothing about it, and the world goes to hell and collapses, that's a bad outcome. (laughs) So, you know, much of what we deal with in public policy is dealing with risk. So, reframing it that way may be a way to um, engage people in a way. Yeah, really, really interesting. You know, to go, I'm I'm sorry
2: if, yeah, I just wanted to throw in, you know, I love the idea that Robert is uh, kind of brooding about of democratizing the ability to argue effectively. When I, 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 centuries ago, when I taught uh, English composition at the college level, um, I was, the pedagogy I was taught involved teaching the Toulmin method of, of argumentation, which is very basic where, you know, you, every argument has a claim, it has data, and it has a warrant that links the claim and the data together. And once I, I could see in my students, this I was teaching at Temple University in what was called the Summer Bridge Program. So these were students who on some level were remedial. They weren't quite quite ready for college work, and in giving them the ability to kind of analyze an argument and figure out what the argument is and where its strengths and weaknesses are, um, it was incredibly, you know, empowering for them. And I, I still go back to that a lot when I uh, when I think about things and kind of pushing that throughout the body politic or, you know, just the, the, everyone in America. That would be fantastic. And in this kind of context, it would be great. And this is something I use a lot when I'm when I'm just discussing things with people where we disagree. I'll ask, you know, if, you know, for a certain proposition, is there evidence that you would accept that would refute your belief? Um, going in. Because if you know that people are willing, and I, I do this for myself too, is there is there some set of data or the way that it gets described that would actually make me change my mind? Um, you have one kind of conversation. If people say, you know, no, there really isn't, we're having a different kind of conversation. It doesn't mean it isn't a, an immensely useful one, but it's probably not going to be best addressed in a kind of debate or argumentation argumentative form of discussion, but rather that something that's more discursive and maybe getting to, a, you know, where we share certain beliefs or certain fears or certain understandings of the world.
1: I, I find that a very, very encouraging scenario, democratized debate, but only as long as those who debate are really willing to do some work. Um, I, because a lot people are, are screaming at each other and considering a debate in all sorts of comment sections and on Twitter. And I, I would want people to understand the difference between an, an opinion and an argument. And the two things can be, have a lot of overlap, but it does take some work. And I, th- I think your point, Nick, of being willing to to change your mind, to, to examine whether there's evidence that refutes your position is, uh, it, that's the big step that I think it, the culture really isn't taking. And, and Clay, I wanted to say to you, lis- listening to the last few minutes of conversation and, and Robert and Nick kind of talking about how to rephrase a resolution to be more constructive for the kind of thing that we want to do. It reminds me so much of the conversations that happen inside intelligence squared every season over every single debate. And I I don't think our, our team gets enough credit for how for, 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 for successfully putting on a debate uh, against the odds of of just how difficult it is to find the right resolution to find the 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 topic of the moment to find the right language a language that will actually present set up a dichotomy of views that is constructive once it's argued out and then actually finding the debaters who are willing to put in the work to get on our stage and to find the debaters who are willing to share a stage with an opponent and find the debaters who are comfortable <laughs> with who their partners are it's an enor- it's an enormously complicated
0: ballet um it, it is. and uh, we we call each one of these a miracle for a reason, <laughs> and uh, and it, it when when a debate happens with you know four four people on stage, it really was miraculous. I even have a little stuffed animal in my office, which is a rabbit coming out of a hat, because you're in a five way negotiation um, with people that that disagree with one another. Um, And may or may not see the validity of arguing against somebody they really disagree with. And we're seeing that play out in science debates in particular, where we're going to more than 50 people to book four people. It's really, you know, that I won't share a stage with that person, their scholarship doesn't matter. And to that point, we agonize over the framing of each one of these debates, it is workshopped internally through advisors, through, you know, our, our team here, multiple producers, experts that we'll go to and say, hey, this is how we're thinking about this. And this is where we think there's a really interesting question and dichotomy. Um, and, and part of the framing that is so important is if it's too, almost like if it's, if it's too vague, we won't be able to have a debate still needs to, to, you know, be specific enough to say there's two very clear sides here. Otherwise, it turns into a panel discussion. And we've had those experiences too, John. And, you know, we have an internal review after each one of the debates that says, hey, did we achieve our goals? And we have a matrix of what success is, uh, whether from the quality of the content to the, or, you know, the quality of our execution and engagement and metrics and all of it. And part of that is how effective was the framing of this? Where did we get stuck? Where did the conversation not you know um necessarily become productive or or where we feel it's still unresolved? Um, so you know, over 200 of these, we've really honed it and think we have a solid formula, because um, there still needs to be some confrontation <laughs> in debate. back to like the the concept of winning it, it, It's not a debate if it's if it's there aren't two clear sides and you're not you're not necessarily poking at those two sides and saying I really disagree with that and here's why um you know, so the, the framing is always such an interesting process. And, and I think agonize is the right word. Wouldn't you say, John? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: I do think there's a real problem when, you know, and I've experienced this in a lot of different settings, and this is, uh, to John's credit, he keeps things on track. But oftentimes people, you know, you agree to a certain debate topic, and then you immediately start talking past each other. And it's very frustrating, whether you're the debater or in the audience, where you're not quite confronting uh, one another. Uh, The one other thing I'll say about the winning, you know, the limits of winning, it's not even Donald Trump, you know, who introduced the concept of winning, uh, hashtag winning into American society. If you go back a few years, it was actually Charlie Sheen during one of his highly public breakdowns. He introduced the hashtag winning. I'm by winning. I win here and I win there. Now what? Let's just do it. Let's make this thing head on. And you were you were in it to win it Talk about an education and then, like this. And then that's the guy and he's our dad and we can get all the answers and the truth. Wow. Winning. I mean, it's worth giving pause to say, like, are we now taking cues from a sitcom actor who was in the middle <laughs> of a vastly public, you know, nervous breakdown and uh, you know, whatnot? Um, we need to have clear terms of engagement. I mean, in terms of, you know, OK, what are we arguing about and then what is acceptable? Um, and at the same time, we need to be able to pull back, I think, into those broader conversations versus debates, at, you know, as a culture, not necessarily intelligence squared, but, um, you know, how do how, how are we constantly toggling back and forth from points where, no, we need to there needs to be a clear winner or loser in this circumstance, like an election and then maybe there needs to be a broader, inclusive conversation where people get to air their <clears throat> anxieties and their insights and their concerns, uh, but not necessarily in a way like, you, you know, you're the weakest link, get out, you've lost. We no longer want to hear from you on this topic.
0: You know, one thing, one thing Nick, you were just saying, and I wanted to add in there, and maybe it'll work or not, um, is, is, you know, when you were talking about the election results and winning just now. I'm kind of wondering is it not why is there this this insane distrust now in traditional media specifically it's at an all time low uh something like 60% of americans think journalists are there just to give biased sources they don't trust what they're hearing only 18% of republicans trust traditional media now um and you think you know? I'm I'm just curious. You know, part of our campaign this year has been talking about that because we we construct these debates to really be about being able to trust what we're doing, um, and the people we're bringing to the stage, and the insights that they're they're sharing with you. But if there's inherent um, you know, distrust in media for so many different reasons. How do you break through that? And I kind of feel like, Nick, you started to talk about it, which for me is kind of like, people have to trust the process. And that seems to be where people are getting, like, they don't trust that the process has integrity of the current election results, that the process of developing the vaccine, it's it's almost like there's there's, you know, I'm not sure how we fix that, but you know, that's the part we can control is is public trust in the process. You know,
2: I, I'm a big fan of kind of showing your work, uh, and I think the most persuasive arguments are those where you know you're not just issuing your conclusion, uh, and especially if you're in in you know media to some degree, but certainly in politics where you can issue your conclusion and then enforce it, kind of at the you know, in the most extreme uh, forms at the point of a gun, um, it is always better. And this is something my predecessor at Reason, Virginia Postrel, really inculcated this in all of us who were um, brought in under her tutelage, is that in order to be persuasive in public policy debates, you need to be showing how you arrive at your particular conclusion. This goes back to, you know, a basic enlightenment ideal of we are in a shared search for truth with a, cap, uh, with a small T, not a capital T. So you share your work because that way other people can pick through it and see if you've made a mistake, if you've made a category error, a data error, whatever. Um, and I think that that's, you know, a lot of my work at Reason really looks at the long-term over the past half century, at least, um, a massive and ongoing persistent decline in trust and authority, whether we're talking about the government or business or the nonprofit sector. And it's because- Increasingly, you know, people are just issuing diktat rather than actually persuading and convincing people. So I think uh, and Claire, you had mentioned there's, you know, a, a kind of death of expertise um, there that's happening in a couple ways. One is, you know, outcomes from things like the Vietnam War and, uh, you know, I'd say the Iraq uh, occupation we no longer believe in the best and the brightest that we can leave it we can just kind of outsource how we live our lives to the smart boys who went to the right schools and you know have are good at math i think that's great i think it's a, it's an improvement in american society but we need to replace it with legitimate authority and we've been slow to do that um and i think um one of the ways that you build expertise is by explaining how you're thinking and how you come to conclusions but the other thing is generationally, and I see this a lot in millennials and Gen, uh, Gen Zers, and I realize this partly, it's just I'm an old man who spent a lot of time gaining expertise. But there is an almost categorical rejection uh, based on personal you know, proclivity to expertise. I'm sure we've all had experiences where we're talking about something we know deeply. And then somebody is just like, yeah, I don't think so. And, you, you know, I, I'm, I have a background in literary studies and I'll, I'll talk to people about American literature who clearly know nothing about the topic and they're not interested in engaging a more kind of informed perspective. Um, so it's complicated. But I think showing your work is the beginning of, of all of this.
0: That's, that's you know, and, and Robert kind of, you know, you were talking about using evidence and facts and debate. Um, obviously, I mean, that's that's what both sides are presenting a case for us to really understand and consider the facts and evidence on both sides. But how does that work in this moment where you hear this phrase, a post-truth world bandied about Um, constantly? Oh, we're in a post-truth world. We can't find the truth. I mean, I feel like that's the function of debate is to try and get to that truth. It's a synthesis of the ideas on both sides, ultimately.
3: Right. So um, a couple of comments. I think everything Nick says is true, but it doesn't address the problem. You know, the QAnon uh, believers who believe, you know, crazy stuff, um, and if they they were on a debate, they would present, you know, absurd stuff um, that, you know, has no basis in reality. Um, It reflects the fact that, um, you know, people don't trust any source at all. Um, and I don't know how to fix that problem. Uh, but he's right that in general, showing your work is great. And I'll give you one practical example on the voting thing, which I actually think would make a huge difference. I think it all comes down to voter ID, really. I, I, I think that the people that are questioning the results just believe that there are a ton of people who showed up who were frauds, all right? And even though we have no evidence of that, the fact is... That Democrats, until Joe Manchin a couple of days ago, basically said, look, I'm willing to accept alternative forms of voter ID, but I accept the principle that there ought to be some voter ID. I think the Democrats' argument on voter ID is untenable to the average person. When you say, look, we don't need any form of identification at all, because to do so is to basically discriminate against people who don't have conventional forms of ID. All right. The average person doesn't buy that. Or certainly the the person who's skeptical of the results doesn't buy that. Um, One thing I think that would tremendously enhance legitimacy in the election is if we at least accepted the principle of voter ID and we're going to agree that, you know, your your utility bill or some other form of ID um, can substitute for having a driver's license or something else. I think that's one example where you would diffuse a lot of attention because that's what people are angry about. On immigration, the reason people are angry is that people jump, you know, they jump over the line and they come um, here illegally. And that's what we've been arguing about for decades. But most people in America are for legal immigration. And it's the violating of the rules part that people get all upset about who are worried who will sort of take the Trump view on immigration. So I think there are certain public policy issues where at least if we could get the two sides to agree, look, if we could solve this problem, a lot of this anger would go away, we'd be in a much better place. But I cannot solve the crazy stuff you know, the QAnon and stuff and say that that's a legitimate authority, because there's just no way to rebut that. Um, you're not going to change your mind. There are some people that no matter what you do, no matter how much work you show, um, it isn't going to change their mind. And that's just unfortunate.
2: I wish I were as uh, optimistic, Robert, as you are in that there are data sets that were or, or policy changes that would uh, kind of alleviate a lot of uh, magical thinking. And I think it goes, it, it shows up in different places on the political spectrum, but for instance, not QAnon per se, but say Republicans feeling like the election was a fraud because, because their guy lost. Uh, you know, um, it's I think that a lot of the times these anxieties. You know the anxiety is underlying and it expresses itself in different ways and I think what we're really focused or what we're what we're seeing in American society there's a major restructuring going on of the economy of the demography of america it's very it's very similar to me of the 1920s um, and where the economy went from being kind of rural to being industrialized and urbanized there was a ultimately a cap put on immigrants, but there were, um, you know, the, the foreign-born population of the United States reached its, its peak. Um, there is anxiety about a world that seems to be beyond control. And so people, you know, they will latch on, they'll move on to the next thing. If you say, OK, well, it's not voter fraud or it's not legal versus illegal immigration. And um, I'm, you know, part of me is not worried about that because I do see it as a triumph of an America where people are able to participate more fully and their subjective experience is more powerful. I mean, a lot of the, you know, there's the whole, remember in the eighties and nineties when Spike Lee would wear t-shirts saying it's a black thing. And it was this primacy put on subjective experience, which I will not and cannot communicate to another person, but you better live as if my subjective experience matters as much as yours. Some of that is good. Some of that, I think, is a fulfillment of an American ideal of kind of individualism and experiments in living. Um, But I, you know, I I worry that we are not dealing with this larger question of what is the broad narrative that knits together America as a society. For a while, you know, in the, in the post-war era, it was we were an immigrant nation. Um, now we don't have what Wesley Yang calls a successor ideology that, that knits us together. And so I think, you know, until we, until we forge that at the highest level, it's going to be hard to really expiate the most bizarre and potentially destructive uh, kind of uh, conspiracy theories, however we define that term.
0: Our hope is to be uh, able to have a conversation where the two sides can, you know, have something productive and walk away with a solution. So, you know, hopefully <laughs> that's what we're striving for in this next year and through the upcoming debates that that will be mounting and look forward to Nick and Robert, you know, having both of you involved.
1: Well, to all, to all of you listening, um, you, I, I think we've given you a good sort of glimpse, as I said, behind the scenes and both how we had to pivot this year. And the way we think about these things and the way we are continuing to think about these things, and I really mean it, we would love to hear from you after you've heard this conversation, just to get your thoughts on some of what we've talked about. We really take uh, thought, you know, out, outside suggestions and perspectives really, really seriously. And I, I'll say once again um, that we really value your financial support. We are a nonprofit. The end of our fiscal year is coming up June 30th. And we really hope you'll consider a donation, which, by the way, is tax deductible. And it's going to help us get our next year going. We want to do more of this. We want to bring more debates. Uh, We want to keep things going, like the newsletter that we launched this year. Um, And we have our new uh, one-on-one debate series where we will be talking about news in the headlines. It all takes money and people like you who value our content and want others to have access to it as well. We have a membership program. I mentioned that where you get insider access to our events and all of that's available at our website, IQ2US.org. I want to thank all three of you for this conversation. Speaking of commercials, I want to give one more chance to plug a book that I, I, I am nearly finished reading and really liked a lot. Uh, Robert Lighton's book, Resolve, Debate Can Revolutionize Education and Help Save Our Democracy. To Nick Gillespie, I want to say cash prizes for the winners. Sorry, it's not in the plans yet. And Clea Khanna for keeping us on course all through this very, very difficult year and having us come out with our flag flying high. I want to say thank you to you for that.
0: Thank you, John.
1: Clea and Nick and Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks to everybody who's been listening. I'm John Donvan from Intelligence Squared US, and we'll see you next time. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host... John Donovan.